0: I, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, do solemnly swear that you will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States.
1: And I will
2: faithfully execute the office of President of the United States.
1: And will, to the best of my ability, and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. Preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help you God? So help me God. Congratulations, Mr. President. Just remember why you came here.
0: You said it the day you graduated from med school. You took the physician's oath. Remember it. Tape it to your locker, to your bathroom mirror, because it is too easy to lose your way. I solemnly pledge to consecrate my life to the service of humanity. I will give to my teachers the respect and gratitude that is their due. I will practice my profession with conscience and dignity. The health of my patients will be my number one consideration.
2: The health and well-being of my patient will be my first consideration. I will respect the autonomy and dignity of my patient. I will respect
3: the autonomy and dignity of my patient.
2: I will maintain the utmost respect for human life.
0: Now being admitted to the high calling of the physician,
3: I
2: I solemnly pledge
3: to
0: consecrate my life to the care of the sick,
3: the promotion of the health,
0: and the service of humanity. I will will practice practice medicine medicine with conscience conscience conscience.
2: and in truth. The health and dignity of my my patients
3: will be my first concern. concern.
0: I I will hold in confidence
1: all that that my patients relate to me. I will not permit considerations including those based on race, ethnicity, ethnicity, gender, age, disability, disability, sexual orientation, religious or or political beliefs or any of the other differences among
2: people that have been excuses for misunderstanding for dissension or hatred. To
3: influence my duty to care for those in
2: need of my service. I'll
3: I'll respect the the moral right of patients to participate participate fully in the medical medical decisions decisions that affect them. I will assist my patients to make choices that coincide with their own values and beliefs.
1: I will try to increase my competence constantly and respect those those who teach
3: and those who broaden our knowledge by research. I will try to prevent, as well as
2: cure disease. I make these promises all freely, and
0: upon my honor. I'm here today to talk about the Oath to Self-Care and Well-Being, and this is an interview with doctors Mukta Panda, Margaret Lowe, and Kevin O'Brien. Could each of you introduce yourselves and tell us what your current institution and position at that institution is? And in the spirit of the topic, we're here to discuss today, uh, why don't you tell us about your favorite hobby or activity outside of medicine uh, that you're involved in?
2: Yeah, thank you very much, Paul. We really appreciate this opportunity. So I'm Mukta Panda, and I am a practicing internist, professor of medicine at the University of Tennessee in Chattanooga. I also serve as the assistant dean for medical student education and well-being here. So I think really I've always enjoyed long walks. The past two years my favorite uh, relaxation has been long walks with a walking partner um, who we both know are vaccinated and safe Mm -hmm. and uh, go on long hikes and Chattanooga is beautiful to do that.
3: But my name is Margaret Lowe. I am professor of medicine at the University of Florida in Gainesville. I am the associate program director for the residency program as well as the director for the primary care track here. So I absolutely love music and I love to sing. So and many of you guys may not know this, but I actually used to be the lead singer for my husband's rock band. And like art, I kind of dropped it along the way when things got busier but i still love to sing and still loved uh, music and my daughter and i our favorite pastime is really singing in the car and we like we sing really loud as people hear us but we don't care <laughs> that's
0: fantastic <laughs> and margaret are you are you also on the uh aptum council
3: i am i am currently on aptum council year two.
0: Oh, excellent very exciting Yes, these are exciting times to be involved in any organization. Kevin?
1: My name is Kevin O'Brien. I'm a professor of medicine at the University of South Florida in Tampa. So even though South Florida is in our name, we are not Miami, Dade, we are not Broward, Fort Lauderdale, Palm Beach, we're in Tampa. Uh, I've been at USF for 20 years. Uh, I'm the clerkship director of internal medicine. Uh, And I also am the director of medical student education for the Department of Medicine. My favorite activity is putting first things first. Every morning, my wife and I do renewal strategies. We sit down and read scripture together and we exercise together and we do that daily. It is the favorite part of my day. Not only do we read scripture, but we actually reflect on it and talk about it. Uh, and how it relates to our life. And then we exercise together. So that's the favorite part of my day.
0: Mukta, we're here today to talk about the oaths of self-care and well-being that you and your colleagues have helped to develop and have written about in the American Journal of Medicine, as well as talked about at Alliance for Academic Internal Medicine meetings. Um, But don't we already have the Hippocratic Oath, which is recited at many medical schools upon graduation? And why does medicine need another oath?
2: thank you paul that's a really insightful question and um, you know in full disclosure i had known about the hippocratic oath and uh taught being taught about it in medical school but we didn't really recite it in a ritualistic fashion however we were always reminded about it and it was almost something very sacred just as we consider uh medicine to be more of a vocation so it was only after I left India and did some training uh, in London and in America where I saw the practice of reciting the Hippocratic Oath and really personalizing it. And uh, through the practice of medicine here, both on an academic side and a clinical side, I started questioning some of the tenants, whether they were actually applicable today in our healthcare system. Uh, There was some, uh, you know, resonance with what we were doing. One was that uh, altruistic motive of caring for our patient. But I had some uh, issues with the boundaries. Where does patient care as family and how much is enough? And how is the external healthcare environment influencing what we are supposed to be doing? And then we are human too, what about us? So with those questions in mind, I started sort of researching whether the Hippocratic Oath in itself was applicable and then came across many other versions of the Hippocratic Oath that people have modified themselves. And uh, where was the value of the caregiver? We are called to care uh, with utmost altruism for our patients and their families. So thinking about that and the applicability of the Hippocratic Oath, we decided to think about an oath that complemented the Hippocratic Oath that unapologetically and unashamedly calls for care of the caregiver and the team to build a system of healthcare that would allow for the best care of our patients. Because at the end of it, if we think about why we've all come into medicine, our personal statements or our uh, reason for joining this vocation, there was a why there. And oftentimes the moral distress comes when we can't connect to that why because of a system of care. And I think the oath to self-care and well-being allows for a partnership to help create that system.
0: Hmm. So... Margaret, in 2007, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement came up with the so-called triple AIM. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us what that is um, and if you could also explain why it was later broadened to become the so-called quadruple AIM. They added a fourth AIM into this this uh, cadre of AIMs and uh, <laughs> why don't you tell us a little bit about those.
3: So um, thanks, Paul, for asking that question. I really appreciate it because I think many people are really familiar with the triple aim, but not as many are uh, aware of the quadruple aim, which is super important. So, back in 2007, when uh, the rise of the quality safety movement came around, the Institute of Healthcare Improvement, which was at the forefront of that movement, um, created the, the triple aim, which uh, it, was to encapsulate the three key principles um, of quality improvement. And that was one, to enhance patient experience, two, to decrease healthcare expenditures and costs, and third, to improve the population health as a whole. So we in the medical community, of course, embraced the triple aims because we wanted to improve our healthcare system but as we were doing so, there was a key element that was missing, and that was the people, the people in the community and the medical community that was caring um, for others that were actually improving the health care. And so fast forward 10 years in 2016, as physician burnout was going up and physician suicide rates were going up, the quadruple aim surfaced. And it really added a fourth aim, and that was to ensure and cultivate the joy of medicine, so that we can make sure that the well-being and the mental health of the caregivers, the mental, the uh, healthcare professionals in the community, are also a high priority. I'm a big advocate of the, the quadruple aim.
0: Hmm, got it. Um, and Kevin, at the danger of introducing too many acronyms into this uh, interview, I, in reading uh, the work that you guys have done and reviewing some of your work at uh, meetings, um, this acronym CHARM comes up a fair amount. What does that stand for? Who's in CHARM? And what are this group's goals?
1: CHARM stands for the Collaborative for Healing and Renewal in Medicine. And it's a group of uh, educational leaders, academic leaders, and research experts in burnout and well being from over 70 institutions across the United States. Um, and it's comprised of people from multiple specialties, not just surgery, not just internal medicine, but pretty much runs the gamut. And the goals of CHARM is really to advocate for well being, to so not just simply look at burnout and its impacts, but actually to. Create a toolkit, if you will, of strategies for resiliency, uh, gather best practices, and really promote um, the recognition and inclusion of well-being initiatives for both learners and physicians. I think we've seen that the ACGME and the LCME have mandated that well-being initiatives are um, deployed for medical students and residents, but we really want to see it be inclusive for everybody, uh, practicing physicians as well.
0: Hmm. And was there a particular founding organization or or group of uh, physicians who started Charm?
1: I joined Charm in 2016, so I would defer to Mukta uh, uh, for further uh, edification, if you will. Mukta?
2: Yes, so absolutely. Uh, Jonathan Rick from Mount Sinai and Hassan Bazari from Mass General sort of had this idea and then uh, approached uh, others in the community, academic community. And really it was the Alliance of Academic Internal Medicine that really first supported us with a seed grant. And uh, it has continued to grow since to involve not just internal medicine uh, physicians, but uh, special, all specialties. Uh, have been involved in the charm membership now.
3: Got
0: it. So Mukta, um, we're going to get into the specific oath uh, to self-care and well-being, but in sort of broad strokes, what's in this oath and when do you expect students to recite it, uh, if at all? I mean, because I, I, an oath you usually think of as something we recite at some momentous occasion, but tell us a little bit more about the broader aspects of this oath.
2: Sure. And I think I'd really like to uh, use a personal story to sort of give you a better idea of what is in this oath. Uh, because I think though my story is probably unique to me, I found that it had resonance with a lot of people. So, in uh, it, you know, my journey started around 2008, 2010 when uh, the term burnout or uh, exhaustion was really um, not entertained uh, and almost sort of, you know, you felt like you had to be this all achieving hero sort of person. However, um, I myself, though personally, you know, I had two children, was doing really well professionally, professor of medicine, chair of medicine, you know, great team, supportive team. And um, people really thought, you know, I was thriving. Some people even went ahead to say that I was successful. But personally, I felt like I had this weight on my shoulders. I couldn't uh, concentrate. I couldn't get the creative juices flowing. I felt everybody around me had their act together and something was wrong with me. When I went home, I was not a very good person, snappy, irritable with the children. And really the most scary part was when I was all by myself, I was all alone. I felt a total failure. I was really grateful for a group of colleagues who really reached out and asked me what was wrong. And I knew that if I had to continue in my profession like this, I needed to one, understand what was going on with me and ask for help, but two, try to see why. And as I thought about it and reflected, there were many reasons. One, personally, that I had overcommitted a whole lot because of this fear uh, of not being able to do everything and in some way losing out. And two, finding myself oftentimes fighting against uh, things which I never took time to really unpack, to understand. Let me explain a little bit. So I found that I wanted to be everything to everybody personally. And, you know, we all, if you think about it, we aspire to be true servant leader. We teach that to our students. We teach that. And what does medicine do? It rewards the I. We uh, our promotions. Everything is the number of primary author publications. How much have you achieved? Right. It is the I, And. We, I personally wanted to give, give, give to others to the point where I was exhausted. I was mentally, physically exhausted, you know, wouldn't take a good lunch off, uh, in the afternoon, working lunch, wanting to be overcommit myself because if I didn't t- take part in this meeting, I would lose out on that grant and, you know, what would happen. And then when I gave, gave, gave to myself, I came from a place of depletion and exhaustion and that Giving to myself was not a priority, and that became that negative spiral. And I was able to see that through my colleagues and through self-reflection, which I was really grateful for my own training as a facilitator from the Center of Courage and Renewal. And I went back to saying, why did I go into medicine? What was it that brought me into this vocation to start with? And what was I fighting for? So on a professional level, I started looking at things that were getting me upset. And when my, I would get self-aware of my own tension, things like when I was fighting for patients to get prior authorization or something, or just complaining about the electronic medical record that was just starting, rather than trying to understand and, in, and really turning to not judging things whether it's right or wrong but it's just different and how could we work together to make it better for everybody so i started having open conversations and realizing that everybody was facing the same things from the medical school people to medical school uh, students to the residents and we had the same thing so creating that open safe spaces to talk about it became very uh, life-giving to me i found more energy with that so When you talk about what, so what I realized then was to be able to care for others, whether in my role as a leader or a mother or a spouse or a friend, or as an educator, I needed to care for myself. And then I started thinking about three other things. Was self-care selfish? People started asking, you know, but this is selfish if we take time for ourselves. But then I realized it's not how I take care of myself. It is I take care of myself with others, right? So it's not I in spite of we, but I and we together. So making sure that we find time within our work to make some time to care for ourselves. And then uh, it's not counterproductive. How can we find in our system to reward the we also? So how do we have uh, recognition for teams? rather than just and try to build that in the promotion cycle. And the third thing was that we don't need to, I didn't need to go take a spa day or something or a week off and spend a lot of money to care for myself. How could we create a system together to build it within our work day? So coming together, we all actually realized we could make that happen in the eight hours, 10 hours that we were at work. And how did? And then the second thing we realized, we don't have to wait to get to my age to do that we should instill that in the medical students right from coming in because they come in with that mindset. You know, physicians and residents and fellows, they aspire. They already come in with great portfolios. Um, By their just acceptance into medical school, they have shown personal accomplishment. But how do we build in care for self, care for others, reflection to meaning and purpose right from the beginning. And that's why we decided that's the place to start with white coat ceremonies. But then we did a study in Chattanooga looking at um, what people remembered about the Hippocratic Oath and whether they even remembered the tenets, And we found that Many people remembered reciting it anyway from, because we had included students, resident fellows, and faculty in their uh, last season, mid-season of uh, careers. People had remembered reciting it up to 40, 50 years ago, and some as recently, but not many people remembered what was in it. So we not only really decided that it needs to be at the white coat ceremonies when students just come into this vocation, but that it needed to be something that was becoming a pattern to remind people of their why and what, how important it is to maintain the tenets of altruism, but not at the cost of self-care and colleague care. But together, in partnership with each other. So, how can we continue to do it? Say at graduation ceremonies, at uh, clinician educator ceremonies, at local and regional meetings, like the you know we've done it at our Tennessee ACP meeting. We did, just did it for our graduation of residents and fellows. New intern orientation, we were invited to uh, as a group to lead the new interns at Hofstra in the White Coat uh, in their new intern orientation with the Oath to Self-Care. So thank you for allowing me to give you a little bit of a background, but I think that story will explain um, better why this needs to become a ritual, just as the Hippocratic Oath, but more in not a bolus fashion, but a drip fashion across our medical journey.
0: Um, We're gonna dive a little deeper into what's actually in the oath, but who actually wrote the oath?
2: This was really a collaborative effort. Uh, I am the chair of one of the subgroups of CHARM, the Faculty Development Toolkit Group. And the main purpose of that group was to really look at ideas and creative opportunities to really make the uh, culture of well being something that is common nature in everything we do as clinicians and educators. And so we just posed this dilemma. The purpose of these uh, faculty development toolkit group meetings, we were a group of about 20 people. We had a call every month, and it was a safe space to unpack any issues that were causing us uh, concern or we wanted to share. So this issue came up, and we just posed a question of, you know, this would be something really useful, especially since the terms exhaustion, burnout were becoming more acceptable and commonplace, and that was the mission of CHARM. To create this collaboration of healing and renewal, so we've had other members of the faculty development toolkit group that I'd like to acknowledge, and um, Margaret, Kevin, and I sort of took the lead on it, and uh, we all had a say in what needed to be in the oath.
0: Got it. So it was really a large team effort coming up with this with this oath. Okay. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like, from what you said, Mukta, that it is potentially read at any point in someone's career it could be the white coat ceremony that often occurs at the beginning of medical school or is the beginning of medical school graduation graduation from residency midpoint career and so forth so that Mm -hmm. that clarifies a lot margaret can you take us through the first two elements of the oath to self-care and tell us a little bit about why they exist
3: sure i'm happy to so if, is it okay if I recite them as I explain absolutely, them?
0: Absolutely, yes.
3: Perfect. So, the first tenet of our oath to self care and well being specifically states we solemnly uh, pledge to enhance and promote the well being of ourselves, our colleagues, and the medical community as part of our responsibility to the effective care of our patients, ourselves, and in partnership with our healthcare organization. So, you know, this first tenant, when we developed it, really wanted to emphasize the shared duty of wellness, not just with the individual, but between the individual and the system, because we realized that individual self-care is just not enough. And in actuality, the responsibility lies mostly with the system itself. And so that means that the system really needs to have open, transparent healthcare leaders that are willing to work together collectively to develop a culture of, of wellness, as well as to provide evidence-based and impactful resources for that. Because there really are a lot of therapeutic measures for wellness that exist, um, and we could really put that in play at the institutional and system-based level. So that, that was our first tenet and the rationale behind that. Um, the second tenet specifically states um, we will develop and adhere to habits that promote and maintain humility, meaning, and wholeness of self in our work and interactions. So that tenant actually speaks to being really open and honest with ourselves, To not be afraid of being scared, of being lonely, of even being hypocritical at times. I think the pandemic itself has really pushed us into a certain type of moral um, insecurity. And we've had to confront a lot of very ethical, complex issues and made some really difficult decisions that kind of strayed against maybe our own personal or patient safety. And we have to be OK with that. And, it is, and that, this tenant says it's OK to have that. But at the same time, realize it is a form of leadership to be vulnerable, to share that vulnerability and humility with others. But the system itself needs to really provide us a safe space, a psych- psychological timeout for us to be vulnerable. So that was um, the rationale between, between uh, behind tenant number two.
0: Excellent, and Kevin, could you uh, recite number the third uh, tenant, uh, briefly explaining the rationale for that one, and then um, number four and explaining the rationale as well?
1: I'll actually give you things we've done at USF that kind of echo what is. Describing the tenets. Uh, so the third tenant is we will be attuned to the physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual needs of ourself and others and share our practices of well-being for the benefits of our patients, our colleagues, and the advancement of healthcare. So every Friday morning, I'm actually the post-call attending at the VA. So I round with the post-call team and I'm with another attending. So it's a new team to me. So I make everybody introduce themselves. Say, where they went to undergrad, where they went to med school, uh, what they want to be when they grow up. So I kind of try to break the ice. But after that introduction, I ask them all about what they've done for self-renewal. And by show of hands, I say in the last three days, how many of you have actually exercised? And then when no one raises their hand, I say, okay, how many of you parked your car really far away from the hospital and walked in? Or how many of you took the stairs rather than the elevator? And I tell them, I I personally climbed Mount VA today. I climbed from the ground floor to the seventh floor, which is eight flights of stairs. And when you say to yourself, you're too busy to exercise, you're making excuses. You can park your car far away and you can take the stairs. And you'll be amazed at how much exercise even a busy person will get. And the next question I ask them is, how many of you have read a deeply meaningful book that made you think about the meaning of life and your purpose and your calling? And then I say, how many of you have meditated? how many of you took a walk in nature and appreciated the beauty of nature and how minuscule we really are. Then I asked them how many of them have listened to music or read a book that got their mind off current events or problems in the world. And then the last thing I asked them is how many of you in the last three days have actually phoned your mom. And so I try to do that and tell them, you know, when you're feeling upset and aggravated in traffic at work It's because you're not doing these practices of renewal and you really need to do them. And if you notice that one of your colleagues seems stressed out when they're entering orders in the EMR or they're speaking to staff, you should actually approach that person and tell them that you care and ask them, is is everything okay?" And you can do that in private. You don't have to do it in a public setting. So I think that's the practical application of Tenant 3.
0: And if I could just interrupt you for one second, Kevin, I could imagine that uh, reminding them about all these things that they, I'm going to guess that frequently they're not doing a lot of the things that you're asking about. and, And so you're serving as a reminder to do those things. But does it sometimes backfire? Does it have a demoralizing effect on them in terms of feeling like, oh, I'm such a loser. I haven't called my mom. I haven't walked up the stairs. I haven't parked far away. I haven't gone for a walk in nature.
1: I've, I've been very lucky or blessed. Um, I haven't had it backfire. And the amazing thing about it is when we do rounds, we actually take the stairs hmm. uh, and they do it together. And I asked one of them, hey, did you bring nitro with you? Because I got to pre-medicate before I do the stairs. You know, so I really try to break the ice and, and, and not make it look like they have to be perfect. Um, and I've told, I've given them examples. It's like, if you don't speak to your mom, you're going to have that two hour conversation where she was like, you haven't spoken to me and you're, you don't really have the time. So just calling her when you're sitting in traffic, make something count twice. Mm-hmm. And then I, them the example of, I go for runs with my wife in nature under trees, listening to music. And so I'm actually practicing all four of the renewal strategies I just described all at once, and they can all make the time to do that. So I actually, it has not backfired. Got it, okay. And how about number four? Uh, Number four is we will commit to integration and balance in our professional and personal life and seek help when we feel ourselves or our peers are overburdened, fatigued, or less compassionate. Now, what I noticed here at USF is we have a system of scheduling patients uh, and the system doesn't uh, recognize who's an intern and who's a PGY2 or PGY3. And so the schedulers will just book four patients in the morning and the afternoon for every resident that's in clinic. And you have brand new interns uh, in July seeing eight patients in clinic when they don't even know how to use the EMR. So one of the things, me and my colleagues, we spoke out against it. And we said, can you change the system? And they said, no, we can't change the system because those templates are there. They can't modify them based on the time of the year, blah, 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 blah. So we went to the residency leadership and what the residency leadership did is actually created a float person, an extra resident to help out and teach the interns how to use the EMR in clinic. Cause it's completely different than the inpatient setting. We use Epic here at USF, but inpatient and outpatient are not the same. So that float person sees the extra patients for the intern, teaches them how to use the system. And it, it's even spilled over into the inpatient side that we actually have two residents running the team in July and August, so that new resident doesn't feel like an overburdened leader and can't keep up with things because they have a more senior colleague helping them. So I think when you speak up for the residents and you do it in a way that's not offensive and that you're trying to do it for the betterment of the patient, our leadership actually listened. Uh, And and again, I was applying the tenant of uh, tenant four Excellent.
0: Mukta, how about five, six, and seven? Could you recite those each one and the rationale for each of those?
2: Uh, five is, um, we will champion for a healthcare system that values the well-being of its personnel, uses best evidence for an institutional culture of wellness, and recognizing recognizes that in so promoting, the patients we care for are ultimately best served. So this tenant really calls for changing the narrative and drawing attention to the very complex environment that the healthcare system has now become. This really calls for self-care and colleague care to become the mission of every healthcare system. What do I mean by that? I think what we were thinking, and we our hope and purpose for this tenant was that the well-being, the culture of wellness needs to be ingrained into the fundamental structure of an organization. So ways to do that is how do we align and make the tenants of well-being meaningful and value added to the mission and vision of the organization, knowing that we partner with our healthcare clinical organization and the academic organization. An example is what uh, we did in uh, our University of Tennessee in Chattanooga is really Look at the mission and vision of the academic enterprise and the organizational enterprise, and work with the stakeholders to really understand what well being means. So, we created a well being task force, uh, which had uh, representation from the C suite and members from each department, and posed a very simple question What keeps you up at night? and what prevents you from doing the work that you want to do meaningfully. That was the only thing. And we found that they were really speaking to the quality imperative, to the educational imperative. Quality imperative means they wanted to take care of patients safely without errors and be able to do it in a system that was efficient and effective. It was different for the surgeons, it was different for the internists. Um, We, the, C-suite people wanted engagement, they wanted good metrics. That was where the length of stay, patient safety, so on and so forth. The leadership from the academic wanted accredited programs. We were all speaking languages that could really be built into the system. So we uh, we created metrics. So for the financial metric, we looked at the engagement of physicians, the turnover of physicians, and now we've expanded it to the full interprofessional team, not just the physicians, the nurses, and others. Uh, for the academic, we look at the accreditation metrics. So, where we what I learned in this tenant was, and we wanted to remind people, is that well-being means different things to different people. And we had to learn to speak the language that and also educate each other, that when we talk about well-being, it doesn't really mean, uh, like I like to use the quote of, by Darlene Moyer from the American College of Physicians where she says, you can't yoga your way out of burnout. It's much more. Well-being is about a culture that allows you to thrive, to connect meaning to purpose and be creative and feel that you are fulfilled. And we in Chattanooga have used the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We all want to function at the top two tiers of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We are employed or we are uh, recruited to be able to function, be creative, innovative, productive individuals. But how can we do that if our system does not honor the foundational structure of belonging, of um, security, food, and water? So that is what I—that we mean by champion for a healthcare system that allows us to thrive as human beings. The, Sixth, uh, tenant is we will find the courage to be vulnerable and confront professional wrongdoing to the best of our ability, while at the same time showing compassion and respect for all members of the healthcare system. So we started off by really looking at what is the culture of respect. And I remember at one of our calls in the Faculty Development Toolkit group, I just posed a question, does anybody have a bylaw that talks about the culture of respect of the organization? What Or even what is the culture of an organization? We have a system, but what is the culture? And that created a lot of good discussion. And there was some uh, discussion about what even, what does even respect mean? And we found out that respect is where we honor and value everybody as a human being first, and allow for that psychological and emotional safety where we feel connected as a community to a common purpose, that we are all aligned. We may be coming with different ideas, different values, but we all agree and uh, work towards a common purpose of our organization as a group, but at the same time, We allow for differences of opinion to be voiced without fear, because when there is no safety of fear, progress doesn't happen. We are fearful that we will be ignorant. Uh, We will be viewed as being ignorant, so we don't speak up. We will be incompetent and we don't question the status quo. So everything sort of remains siloed and we worked in we work in silos. So we wanted to make sure that we create partnerships where we value this respect and culture and create professional and psychological safety for everybody. Uh, the, and what happens when we do that is in the way we viewed it in Chattanooga was, we talked, we gave everybody the understanding that they were all leaders and leader with a small L. We are all responsible and we all lead, and we all have a voice. And it started from the C-suite asking, do you have everything you need to do your work today? What do you need? Just showing that human connection makes uh, makes you feel valued. And we called it to going from transactional leadership to transformational leadership, where we value each person, whether they are cleaning the rooms for the patients, or they are making policy decisions. And the last tenant is I make these promises of well being to myself and to the vocation of medicine with my highest commitment. So, if you notice from all these tenants that we've uh, written, they all started with the we. And I go back to what I started in the beginning it was I and we. Both are important. And with this last tenant, which starts with I, We again empower ourselves by saying, we will work with a system to create this culture, reminding that though the Hippocratic Oath is timeless, it was written 2,500 years or so ago, our healthcare system today calls for something different. We have felt as though we are working in a system where we are, what I liken to, we are changing the wheels of the bus while the bus is going 250 miles an hour. But oftentimes with this past two years, it feels like we have to learn how to drive the bus too. You know, it's a different bus we are driving. But when we commit unapologetically and unashamedly and we allow the people in our institution that you matter, we will allow for you to care for yourself while we care for each other Within the organization, it allows us to connect to that meaning and be altruistic to our to our patients, to our team, and to ourselves. Thinking
0: about the oath to self-care, um, Margaret, I have a, another sort. And this is, a, I apologize for this question because it's sort of a tough question, but it's it's more of a boots on the ground kind of question for you. I just came off uh, doing two weeks of two weeks straight of ward service and had a couple weeks between that and my last stint. But what do you say to all the physicians who may be hanging on by a thread as we come to sort of the middle or hopefully the tail end of the fourth uh, surge in the COVID pandemic? And, you know, personally, I feel like it's been pretty hard to get away from COVID. Um, It's been hard to travel. And I feel like we've pretty much just, most of us have just been working, uh, whether it's in education or patient care or administration, since the COVID pandemic started, it's been hard to get away because it's limited amount of traveling that you can do to sort of just completely escape everything in your life but what's your advice um, for our many colleagues and trainees who may also be feeling this way? And I have spoken to quite a few who've made that mm-hmm. comment. I feel like we've just been working and that's all we've been doing. And it is it is hard work. So what are your thoughts?
3: That, that's a really great and tough question, I actually, first of all, let me, Thank you for quantifying how many surges we have. I stopped <laughs> counting a while back ago, but um, I really appreciate that question. You know, it's, I think you're going to hear a lot of differing perspective and varying advice, um, but my advice is more stems from tenants, one, tenants two and three. So I, I would say to those who are going through that, and I've gone through it myself, is acknowledge that feeling. It's okay to, to, to feel the loneliness. It's okay to feel that vulnerability, to feel the the scaredness. Um, I think that most of us as humans don't want to do that because it's a sign of weakness or, and so we tend to compartmentalize or we tend to rationalize those feelings because it's a chink in our armor, but tennis two and three say it's Okay. There's some power to self-reflection, to reflect on why you're feeling that way and to share that vulnerability with others. The social connectedness that Mukta talked about, there's it's, it's very cathartic. I think that we need to let that go um, to that sense of vulnerability or feeling weak from the vulnerability. And I say that because... and. I tell a personal story because I think it illustrates what I'm trying to advise is I was sitting in dinner with a bunch of patients or not patients, a bunch of my really close friends. This is like, I'm, I'm working so much. I'm thinking patients, but I was sitting with a uh, dinner with a lot of my friends and we were talking about the loneliness of COVID. And then I somehow mentioned that, you know, some of the coping skills and strategies, my therapist had recommended and, One of my really close friends turned and looked at me and said, you see a therapist? You're like one of the most resilient and toughest individuals I know. And that just made me realize, like, there is still a stigma of self-care and that mental health. And we need to fight against that. You know, we need to channel that Simone Biles in all of us, even if it's one individual at a time, and it's okay to be open about it.
2: That's my advice. Uh Uh What do you guys think, Muta, Kevin, your thoughts? No, I think you've really uh, said it beautifully. I think the value of building community is so important because we all have those fears, like you said, and community is nothing but a common unity. Uh, I remember I was on inpatient very early in COVID uh, last year in April, and I was feeling the same fears with elderly parents at home. And uh, so I could not center myself for rounds. And I just started rounds by saying, hey, guys, you know, why don't we just uh, uh, take a minute to think about the silver linings in spite of COVID? I'm feeling scared. I just, you know, talked to the team and we sat and we talked about it just for about three minutes in the hallway. You know, each one talked about it. The next day we started rounds and my senior resident said, hey, Dr. Panda, do you mind if we start by talking about the silver linings in spite of COVID? He said, I went home and talked to my wife and children about it and my son made this mask for me and he pulled out a mask and I get goosebumps thinking about it it, and it was written on that. I love you, dad. Mm -hmm. And now that's become a common practice. You know how and then the other thing that you mentioned is how can we take time to make those reflective moments part of our day? Something that we do is every week taking time as a group, especially on a pre-call day, asking, you know, so what gave you hope? What inspired you? And what surprised you? And, you know, we open the space with safety. And as we as leaders, if we show our own vulnerability, our students, our residents, our colleagues will realize they're not alone.
1: Hmm. Kevin, any thoughts? Yeah, I, I think that the oath is based on principles and principles are immutable. They are changeless. So no matter what pandemic comes, no matter what electronic medical record is created, no matter what system is set up, no matter what ACGME or LCME requirements you have to meet, if you live by principles, you'll have harmony in your life. So humility, integrity, and temperance are so important. And really, um, Margaret and Mukta tough talked about uh, humility already. It's okay to say you're frustrated. It's okay to say that you're scared. It's okay to say that you're not sure. It's okay to say uh, asking for help. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, And so I think that's extremely important. You need to model that behavior uh, because everybody thinks that wealth, power, and possessions is what's the goal. And that's really not the goal. The goal is to take better care of our patients. And that's really what the, you know, the tenants are all about. Number two is integrity. And it's making small commitments to yourself and keeping them. And one of the things I like to say to residents is how many of you set your alarm clock and then hit the snooze button? You're actually not having integrity when you hit the snooze button. That's a little commitment you made to yourself that you didn't honor. And then these renewal strategies, how many of you sat down and planned out your week and said, you know what, on these days, I have 168 hours, I'm going to plan out these renewal strategies that I can do. Uh, and, and we need to do that. We need to take the time to do that. And for me, the easiest way to do it is putting first things first. So that's why I do spiritual and physical and mental renewal first thing every day before I start my day, it gives me a better outlook on the day. I don't get up out of bed and think about what tasks I have to complete. I do the renewal strategies first. The other part of integrity that people don't think about is it means you don't talk ish about people. So when you're around others and you immediately dismiss somebody or put them down, that undermines your integrity. And what people don't realize Your character speaks louder than any words you can say. So you have to get out of the habit of you're frustrated and upset talking poorly about people. You can say you're frustrated with the system, you're afraid, you're nervous, but you should not talk poorly about people. And the last one is temperance. And I had to look it up in the dictionary because I didn't know what temperance is. It means balance of emotions, but more importantly, it's balance of your personal and professional life. And Mukta started out talking about she had all these responsibilities and all this success and things she's done. I'll never forget my very first day at USF, the program director who was in his 60s came up to me and said, I'm gonna teach you the most wise words in medicine, and they're gonna stun you with their eloquence. There it is right there with a smile. And you have to realize you can't be everything. You can't do everything. And you have to have humility so that when you have crucial conversations with people, it's not adversarial. Uh, and that's why I think humility is the most important trait.
0: And, and, just, and just for our listeners out there who couldn't see the, the little sign that Kevin just flashed in front of the camera, it's a big N-O with a smiley face in the middle of the O.
3: We'll have to make a, a button on that one. I
0: love it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, so I'm going to uh, lob you guys one more, I guess you would call this maybe big picture question. And and that's that, and, and whoever wants to take take this question um, is totally fine. Um, one of the biggest stories in the news the past few months, has, or maybe even year, has been the number of nurses um, who are leaving more intense areas of patient care to either work in areas not associated with hospitals and ICUs, or they're frankly retiring or completely changing their careers, and this has put a remarkable strain on the healthcare system uh, that's struggling to care for very sick patients, whether with COVID or not. Uh, and, and this is all over the country. It seems that burnout from over a year and a half of COVID has finally gotten to some of our colleagues in nursing in a re, in a really big way, and I think also respiratory therapy, therapy, physical therapy are also seeing these these effects. So when your group was coming up with this oath and working in this area, did you consider creating something with a broader scope that would include nurses and physical therapists, other ancillary services that are hit hard by the toll of taking care of patients throughout the pandemic? And and if not, um, why not?
3: I think all three of us can pretty much answer this. I will tell you, when we were developing this oath, we did actually have other healthcare professionals in mind. We did not just focus on physicians because if you look at the tenets, it really is about the human qualities, right? And the human values. It doesn't matter which healthcare profession we uh, you're in. So that's why we're very, and it, it took a lot of renditions and a lot of uh, changes to be inclusive of that. Um, I do, and this is, you know, in this time where, where other healthcare professionals are burning out and are probably more in the front lines. than physicians are like the nurses, like the RTs. This oath speaks volumes even more for them.
2: I agree. And if you notice the word we have used here is partnership and colleagues. Mm -hmm. We didn't use physicians. Unlike the other oaths we, because knowing that we don't work in silos and we are happy to say that this is actually been adopted. Uh, we are using it uh, at our PA graduation.
1: Hmm.
2: We are using it for nursing. We recently had uh, for the Suicide Prevention Month, we had a series of longitudinal events in Chattanooga, and we ended by the interprofessional team reciting the oath to self-care. And actually, the Veterinary Society reached out to us and asked if they could adopt it for their Uh, physicians there so it's being used by other organizations
0: also oh that's fantastic it makes a lot of sense I mean you know if you're working around other you know any of the allied professions if they're completely burned out and feeling terrible about what they're doing it it's going to affect everyone in the environment that you're in So listeners to this podcast include members of the Alliance for Academic Internal Medicine, but also include students who are aspiring to enter medical school. We've got a lot of medical students who listen to this podcast, as well as residents across the subspecialties. Do you guys have any last thoughts for these listeners? Maybe we'll start with Mukta. Uh,
2: Absolutely. I think, um, I hope that when they listen to this, they are empowered to realize that they matter, that they are valued and that they are supported. I think um, they are empowered to be advocates for change, to role model. And I am really proud to say that I have learned a lot from my students and residents about self-care and what Kevin spoke about temperance balance. I think they are much more apt to be receptive to this language.
3: So I would I would tell the the aspiring students and the medical students and the residents that they are not alone and that it is you know it is really not about your accomplishments and your achievements but more about how you respond and how you share the challenges and your failures that will dictate you as a person and, and your success as a, as a physician. Yeah.
1: I think for me, probably for them that they need to begin with the end in mind and what is their definition of success. If they climb the ladder of success and only realize it's leading long wall, is that really success? If they're divorced, their children have substance use issues, their own health care is in poor shape. Yet they're the chairperson of a department and they drive a Mercedes Benz and they they live on the water. Is that really success? And they really little things turn into big things that you really need to practice these personal self-renewal things daily. And when you see people who seem to be in so much control because Margaret said it herself, she spoke to her therapist and they said, wow, you're so resilient. You're so calm people that practice resilient strategies in the midst of chaos, level C's. And, and I think that's the goal is that you really need to stay even keeled because when you get emotional, common sense, reasoning, and judgment fly out the window. And self-renewal is so important to that. And it allow you to have better conversations with leaders and supervisors when you're in under stress where you don't express emotion, and you're not angry, and they'll actually listen to you. And as uh, Mukta said before, when she felt her creative juices were not flowing, if you're practicing personal renewal strategies, you'll find your creative juices again. You'll learn to appreciate the beauty in nature. You'll learn to appreciate the people in your lives, and you'll not be so self-focused.
0: Excellent. Well, I'd like to thank you guys for joining me today on uh, The Mountain Lion podcast. And it's really been a pleasure talking to you. And I have no question that uh, our listeners will get a lot out of this podcast and uh, learn a lot of things they didn't know before about thriving in medicine.
2: Thank you, Paul, for uh, hosting this. And uh, if, if I can, I just wanted to share a couple of more thoughts with any listener. I think um, one I hope that uh, all the listeners feel empowered to make sure that they are leaders in their influence of power. And the oath to self care and well being is truly changing culture and not the system. And what I mean by that is, I like the analogy of building a home and not a house. When an architect builds a house, They sort of have a prototype for a house. But when you build it with an idea of a home, you think about the people who are going to be living there and what would be best for them. And I think in whatever we do as students, as faculty, as physicians, in a little bit, how can we build a home where the human person shows up and make time personally and for our colleagues for rituals, whether that is ritual for renewal or re-energizing ourselves personally and at work, to continue to foster and treasure and value relationships and to have reflection both personally and in community of what gives us meaning and purpose. That's the fundamental underpinning of our oath. And we are so grateful to be able to share that. Thank you.
0: you heard the song, We Are Fine, performed by Sharon Van Etten. You also heard portions of the Presidential Oath of Office as recited by John Fitzgerald Kennedy and Barack Obama. You then heard portions of the Physician's Oath as recited by graduates of the University of Leicester College of Medicine in England, and by students graduating from UC Davis School of Medicine, as well as by Dr. Weber on Grey's Anatomy. You're going out now in a song called Dreams, which is originally written and performed by the Cranberries, and here performed by the native sibling. Check out their music. Thanks, and have a great day. I really appreciate you listening all the way to the end of this podcast. <laughs>